0: Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. The modern museum invites you to touch, or rather, it would if it wasn't closed due to the COVID 19 outbreak. The screens inside the Fossil Hall at the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., say touch to begin. an empty room. The normally cacophonous, hands-on exhibits at the Exploratorium in San Francisco sit eerily silent. And the Please Touch Museum in Philadelphia, which is inviting you right there in its name, has presumably stopped running
1: commercials. No need to keep your hands by your side here. Exhibits are rich in detail, encouraging children to touch, feel, and see the way everyday things in our lives work. To learn more and plan your visit, go to pleasetouchmuseum.org. Interactivity
0: in museums, in the form of hands-on exhibits, has been a trend since 1962, when Michael Spock, director of the Boston Children's Museum, removed do-not-touch signs from the display cases. Since then, hands-on exhibits have served as a way for museums to indicate they're free of their paternalistic pasts, that knowledge doesn't come from on high, but instead, it comes from the visitor's own curiosity, investigation, and play.
1: Traditionally, in science centers, there were all of these science content that lent themselves to physical and interactive demonstrations. And in a children's museum, they were very much concerned about multisensory approaches and engaging different types of learning styles, you know, full body and kinesthetic. When the bulk of your audience is preschoolers. (laughs) They can't read, so you need to engage them in some other way. I think that's traditionally where interactives have lived in science centers and children's museums.
0: This is Paul Orselli of Paul Orselli Workshop, who knows a lot about science centers and children's museums.
1: Hello, my name's Paul Orselli. I'm the chief instigator at POW, Paul Orselli Workshop. That's my company that specializes in museum exhibit development and consulting. Before I started running my own business and I worked inside museums, I sort of oscillated back and forth between the science center world and the children's museum world.
0: But hands-on exhibits spread further than science centers and children's museums. They spread to art museums and history museums and natural history museums, too.
1: I think the reason the interactive approach expanded was that Those other types of museums realized that this interactive or immersive approach helped them reach a broader audience as more and more museums become more and more concerned with reaching a broader audience. One of the opportunities for them to explore or one of the tools in their toolbox are are interactive exhibits and experiences.
0: So the question is, will visitors still want to use hands-on exhibits once museums open again? Is the trend that started in 1962
1: over? As a museum designer and as a visitor, the last thing I think I want to do immediately after museums open up again is to rush into a super-crowded museum We're sort of training people in the era of COVID-19 and and maybe future pandemics to socially distance and be careful about touching surfaces and objects and so on and so forth. Part of me wants to say, especially as it relates to children's museums, even before COVID-19, it wasn't like they were the most rigorously cleaned (laughs) places in the world. So the thing is, it's kind of hard for my friends in the museum world with a straight face to say, well, we're just going to be more rigorous with our cleaning schedules and our cleaning regimen. I mean, are you really going to trail after hundreds of visitors in a decent sized museum and sort of wipe down everything they've touched after they touch touched that?
0: One thing that Orselli can see happening is that hands-on exhibits will need to work a little harder to justify themselves during exhibit planning stages. He sees the end of so-called empty interaction.
1: There are lots of good examples, but but maybe there are also some examples of things that I would consider primarily empty interaction, and a good example of that is a flip label. You know, here's one piece of text and information on a little flap or a door, and to encounter the rest of the information or to get an answer to a question— you have to open up the flap i mean that's interactive in the sense that you had to do something to complete the informational circuit but that might be about the lowest level <laughs> of interaction possible when i teach uh, graduate students uh, one thing i often say is the flip label is the last vestige of an exhibit scoundrel you know it's like somebody who's not really somebody who's not really putting in the the work, you know, they just sort of mailed it in. Oh, we can put a bunch of flip labels here. Or we can put a flip label here and then that's something for kids to do. It's sort of a challenge you because now that I mentioned that about flip labels, it's sort of like, well, could you actually design a flip label experience that is more open-ended or engaging in terms of an intellectual sense and not just sort of this base level Tactile or mechanical sense, and you know, I'm sure you can. It's that when it's sort of misused or thoughtlessly used, the end results are just bad. (laughs) We can't just so glibly and unthinkingly employ something like a push button as we did before. And I, and honestly, I don't know that that's a bad thing because then it sort of forces us to think, well, how could we provide a satisfying experience? And what are the interfaces or other kinds of opportunities that we could provide that would carry the content, that would carry the emotional ideas that we want to carry across?
0: In episode 27 of this show, I argued that there's a certain type of content that digital media is best suited to, system simulation. Understanding concepts like climate change requires thinking about how complex systems interact with one another, and computer simulations allow for that type of inquiry. It's almost like a video game. Visitors try to find the edge of the rules of the world, except in an exhibit about climate change, those rules are the rules of atmospheric and oceanic physics. Right now, the best understood and most common interface to digital media is a touchscreen.
1: There is a certain segment of people who love their touchscreens. You know, if they could fill up their museum with touchscreens, they would do it. I'm agnostic. Touchscreens and touch tables, they are amazing tools. But now we have to be realistic. So now you're going to bring somebody into a new museum and ask them to crowd around with several other people and poke at a touchscreen after what has just happened in the world. Oof. That's a, that's, a, that's a toughie.
0: So what are some interfaces that allow visitors to interact with digital media without a touchscreen and without requiring the visitor to touch anything with their
1: hands? And if I think, for example, of a large floor projection system where you could even just tap with your foot to control some different parameters or different people maybe on the different corners of this you know, large projection area could be controlling in real time different parameters. I could imagine that actually being positive and a worthwhile experience that still takes into account a social aspect, but also a social distancing aspect as well as, you know, something that is sort of full body and it doesn't involve people touching their hands and that you don't have to sort of sanitize the floor because people are tapping it with their feet and doing things.
0: In his most optimistic moments, Orselli hopes that a new approach to hands-on exhibits can bring universal design front and center.
1: Flexibility or control with something like tapping of a foot which could easily also be somebody wheeling their wheelchair over the active area too. I mean, I think this brings the notion of universal design to a different place, in a a positive place, you know, These, these limitations and this triangulation between post-COVID-19 perception and the notion of universal design, I'm going to be optimistic. Maybe that puts us in a, a better place, in a more thoughtful place, in a more satisfying place, ultimately, in terms of interactive experiences for visitors, which I suppose is really what this sort of all boils down to, how supported are museums as institutions in the various countries or parts of the world where they exist or, how resilient are particular museums or museum structures that let them withstand these sort of events?
0: But Urselli sees a silver lining an end to all those mini grocery store exhibits at children's museums.
1: This might finally be a good reason for all the children's museums in the world to get rid of those horrible mini grocery store exhibits, small room filled with lots of tactile objects that kids are just constantly pawing over and checking out and throwing into their mini baskets and then they get put right back on the shelf. Already, already it's a gigantic entropy experiment. So if you're going to keep that experience after everyone has touched something hundreds of things, wipe and disinfect them all and then replace them for people, you know, to just do this. I think constraints are a good thing for creativity. And now we've just been thrown some public health and perceptual constraints. We have to think about that because certainly our visitors are going to be thinking about that. And if we don't show That at least we're sensitive to that. Our visitors could rightfully think that we are insensitive not only to those design constraints and those design considerations, but insensitive to them (laughs) as people who want to have fun and want to be safe.
0: If you haven't checked out Club Archipelago, now is a great time. My favorite episode of our museum movie review series, Archipelago at the Movies, is now completely free. Join Rebecca Riebstein and I as we break down 2004's National Treasure, discussing the tropes of museum films and how museum exhibit design is reflected back through popular culture. To listen for free and hopefully find a little distraction, go to patreon.com slash museum and look for the episode on National Treasure. This episode of Museum Archipelago is brought to you by Pigeon by Sresis, a real-time intelligent platform that uncovers the power of wayfinding for your museum, enabling your visitors to maximize their day at your venue. Using Pigeon, yes, like the navigating bird, the museum's management can gather real-time data for managing space effectively in relation to visitors, while improving their ROI through marketing automation. And using Pigeon, visitors can navigate the maze of a museum with ease, conduct automated and personalized tours based on their interest, RSVP for events, and get more information about the exhibits right in front of them. To find out how Pigeon can help your museum, visit pigeon.siresis.com slash museums. That's P-I-G-E-O-N dot S-I-R-S-Y-S dot com slash museums. Thanks so much to Pigeon, for supporting Museum Archipelago. You can find a full transcript of this episode and links to other episodes at museumarchipelago.com. Museum Archipelago is supported by listeners like you who have joined Club Archipelago on Patreon. If you can't get enough about how museums shape our lives, join now for $2 a month. If this is your first episode, subscribe to the show for free using your favorite podcast player. And if it isn't, leave us a rating or review. And next time, bring a friend.